Hi, everyone. Welcome to Conversations on Sex, Addiction, and Relationships. I'm Dan Drake, and I'm joined today with Jeannie Batone and Tim Stein. And we're missing Wendy Conquest, but we, uh, we're going to have a conversation today on abstinence period from sexual recovery. So abstinence in sex addiction recovery. What do you all think? You know, first of all, I guess I'm curious, how do you define abstinence and why are we talking about this today? Oh, how do we define abstinence? How do we I define? Like Damn, what a question. I, well, first let's start with why we do it before we okay. define it. When we're working with somebody who's a sex addict, <clears throat> oftentimes we, we're very clear that the work we're actually doing with this individual is neurological. We use behavioral interventions. We use community support. We use tools and techniques. We use 12-step programs and communities to do all of this stuff. But really what we're aiming to do is rewire their brain so that their brain shifts from working like a addict wired brain to a recovery wired brain. And one significant tool that we can use to help that neurological rewiring process is to put an abstinence period in place, which allows the brain to do a bit of a little of a reset, not a complete reset, but about as close as we can get to a, a reset so that they can have an easier time moving forward with, uh, with sobriety around their sexual behaviors. Um, and I feel like I was gonna say something there and then it just fell out of my head. So I'm help moving forward with sobriety from sexual behaviors. So that's why we do it. I Would you guys like... have, have any, any other thoughts? I mean, are there other reasons that, that you guys put people through this? Yes, yeah. For sure, the neurological piece of helping those uh, neurological pathways break down a little bit. But the other exciting piece for me as a clinician is seeing what else they can create in the relationship when the sexuality and the sexual piece is just put to the side for a while. You know, are they able to, and if they're not working towards more emotional closeness, more sharing, doing more things together, it's like all the other kinds of intimacy, can they work on that and, and increasing that in their relationship? So their sense of connectedness is stronger that when they reintroduce sexuality into the relationship, maybe there's a bit more safety, emotional safety, as well as risk-taking to be sexual. So that's, that's another key piece of why I really like the abstinence period. Yeah, and I think I think even to back it up a second, um, I when I got into this work or started studying addictions work, it's if you think of like chemical addictions, I know we talked about this in a previous previous conversation, but it's not like it's simple. Of course, recovery is difficult, but but right, like my goal is to stop if I have a problematic relationship with alcohol or cocaine or oxy or something like I'm going to stop that I'm not going to take that ingest that chemical anymore I'm going to stop it I'm going to be completely abstinent but with sex addiction recovery our goal isn't just stopping behaviors necessarily because we, we still have our healthy could be having healthy sexuality in our relationship it's to change our relationship with our sexuality so to me when I think of why I'm doing an abstinence period um, I, I usually use the being in Los Angeles I usually use this 
this understanding that people understand. Um, so if I'm, you know, people here go on cleanses and detoxes and stuff all the time. I don't know if other parts of the country, they do the same, but you know, it's not uncommon if I'm, you know, let's say I've, I've gone too far with whatever alcohol or sweets or something. And so I want to, I want to like reset my system. Usually to do that, I'll go to some sort of juice cleanse or whatever, you know, there's all these different kinds of detoxes and cleanse. So I'll, I'll like limit what I'm um, ingesting, what food I'm ingesting as a way of kind of resetting, re rebalancing my system. And then I can bring things back in a new way. So I kind of see it like that, where the, the abstinence period would be a, this, this time frame where I can, you know, like you said, Janie, like start other activities. I can, you know, I can stop sex and sexuality is my primary way of coping. And then I can bring in other things. Um, non, like what does non-sexual touch look like in my relationship? Um, you know, uh, other areas of intimacy, how do I build in emotional connection with my partner or spiritual intimacy or other things? And I'm building other options for, for new ways of connecting with myself and others. So mm -hmm. that's my main mm -hmm. reason. And I know that when we've broached the topic with this, with our clients at times, some clients are very scared of it. Some clients are very much looking forward to it, but, you know, depending also if they're partner and addict. Um, I definitely find partners sometimes have the, that sounds great. But then there's also the partner sometimes who hasn't had sexuality in their relationship. And the idea that the addict is going to be in an abstinent period, the, the partner feels like, well, wait a second, now, now we're impacting my sexuality and we didn't have that. And now we're bringing it back in and what do you mean you're going to take it away for a while? So I, I guess I don't want to, I want to say that let's also consider the partner's experience when yeah. the addict goes through the well, there's, period. There's the partners that are on the other side of that too. I mean, it's not uncommon to have the partner that feels like, oh, thank God, this is, this is going to be fine. I, then there are the partners that are like, I haven't had this and I want it. And now you're taking it away. Mm -hmm. But there's also the partners that have experienced in their relationship, one of the few ways that they've actually felt connected is through sex with the addict. And now we're putting the addict in a period of abstinence and the partner has a real hard time with that because it feels to them like, uh, like their, their, their connection is being taken away as well. And the, you know, we often see that kind of dynamic more on the addict side, but it's, I, I have found that it shows up on the partner side as well. Or I've seen too the <clears throat> on the partner side this this threat kind of response, this fear or anxiety that if mm -hmm. we take if we take away um, like I, there's feeling something contained. If we're having sex or we're being we have our sexual relationship intact, then maybe if, if then maybe the addict won't stray outside the relationship. So there's this kind of threat, like well, if I take that away, then then the addict's going to go somewhere. He's going to need to get this some his needs met somewhere. So I think this this extra thinking I've seen from partners sometimes this anxiety around mm -hmm. an abstinence period. Um, so I think yeah, taking the partner's consideration uh, needs into consideration around that, or at least educating them on uh, the addiction in general and the purpose of it. And like it's not just it's not just stopping because if you think like definition abstinence is removing a, or abstaining from behaviors. So that's the clearest, obvious understanding. The goal isn't just stopping. It's what are we adding? What are we building? What, what new things are we allowing as a result of abstinence? How do you guys handle it when, um, I'm just curious in this round discussion, like 
I'm thinking of one particular fellow. He was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> like, can't imagine a day without some sort of sexual contact. Newer in recovery and all those things. But, you know, that, <gasps> that fear response within the addict. How do you guys, what do you guys talk to them about? How do you talk them off that edge, that ledge? I mean, there's, oh. the, there's the behaviors and like, I guess I go a roundabout way at first because that, that gives me a clue into someone's relationship with their sexuality. If they have this, this huge, you know, fear, anxiety response, I'm going to dive more into that. Like they're, what's that about? Where'd that come from? What's the fear that's going to happen? I, I just dive into that, exploring it. Cause I don't know for you guys, but for, for many clients that have sexual addiction problems, so many of them, or at least some of them think they're going to die if they don't have sex. Like it's their, it's their lifeline to survival. It's, it's, it was developed as a coping strategy. It was so like, they, they, they think they're going to die. So, I mean, it might sound obvious, but I haven't yet met anyone who's died from abstinence. I don't know if you guys have, but not yet. Nobody I've met has died if they haven't had sex or right. any kind of masturbation or sexuality. So right. I, I think I, I like to look at what kind of that's a, is that a survival, like, you know, plea for survival response or just exploring it more? I don't know what you'd say, Tim. I, abstinence contracts are not something that I say, either you do this or I won't work with you. It, it doesn't rise to that level for me. Uh, so I usually just explore what's going on, what their reaction is. Sometimes I'll say, you know, well, we're going to have this conversation down the road. We're not going to do it right now, you know. So we'll we'll have that we'll we'll have that conversation when we get there, and often further into recovery, they're able to see it differently. I also will talk about, and and this is a, a comparison or a, a, a metaphor that I, I I get from Pat Carnes, which I really appreciate. I will talk about the difference between deprivation and what uh, the, the term out there, which is asceticism, and deprivation which many people view absence contracts as, is I'm depriving myself of something that is essential that I need and that it is an awful torturous experience of time that you're putting me through. And I will talk about asceticism, which is I'm going without for a higher purpose. And so what's the higher purpose? Why are we doing this in the first place? You know, because it's, it's not, you know, some sadistic therapist that, that, that is, therapist that's thinking, oh, what can I put this client through? And Whoa, this is what I'm going it, to, it's, that's not where we're coming from. It's, hey, there's a, there's a larger purpose here. Mm -hmm. There, here's the reason behind this. And so let's, let's talk about this so that, that if you're willing to do this, it's not something you experience purely as a deprivation mm -hmm. that you experience it as, oh, I'm going without this. And here's the higher purpose. Here's the reason that I'm going without this, that this is gonna give me. You know, this is really highlighting for me the importance of the preparation, the psychoeducation, the, the discussion between the coupleship before the abstinence period ever starts. It, to get really the bang for your buck kind of a thing is to do the preparation and discussion ahead of time so that you know what, you know what the higher purpose is which therefore you can avoid resentments or feelings of powerlessness for, for either partner or addict. Yeah. But the importance of preparation 
with, with clinicians and therapists who are experienced in walking, walking folks through this process. There's also that piece I like that you said about going and having the conversation with your partner. You know, that's one of the things that, 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 that we will do all the time, which is before we start an abstinence period, we'll have the conversation about, about it and what it is and why we would do that. And then say, go have a conversation with your partner about this. Would you, so, to that point, Tim, would you, would you have your, if you're working with the addict, would you have the client themselves have the conversation? Would you bring the partner in for a conversation? How do you guys do that? It would, it, it depends on the partner and it depends on the addict. You know, there are, there are many addicts that I work with that are very capable of having that conversation with their partner and the partners are very capable of having it with them. And if they get stuck, then they can come use me as a resource. There are other couples that I work with that uh, I would be extremely hesitant to send that conversation home for them to have just the two of them. And I'm more likely to pull them into the office and say, hey, let's, let's, let's bring this in here. Let's, let's have this conversation with us. There's also a piece, and I think this has been an evolution. I'd be curious your thoughts, Jeannie, because I think this is an evolution in our work together, um, where at one point we said almost exclusively, this is an abstinence contract for the addict only. The partner, whatever you do, that's fine. This is just a contract between us and the addict. And I think over time, what we found was we had to include the partner in this, not that the partner is on an absence contract. They could still be sexual with themselves or in other ways that are agreed upon within their relationship if they wanted to, but working with the partner to as best as they're able to support the addict in this period of abstinence, as opposed to uh, either unconsciously or consciously sort of seducing and putting that energy into the relationship, which can really make it much more difficult for the addict to hold that boundary over that period of time. I think that speaks to what we encourage and uh, you know, I'm guessing we all do this is the encouraging the dialogue in the coupleship about the comfortables or uncomfortables mm -hmm. in the abstinence contract and in sexuality and sexual relations as a whole is trying to increase the comfort level, increase the skill of having those conversations. Um, and so Dan, that's what we do. I, I was gonna go come back to your question and ask you, you know, that's what we do depending on, do we feel that, the, does, do we feel and does the couple feel individually they can have that conversation to start it at home yeah. or the four of us come together? Um, how do you handle it? Yeah, I was trying to think, I guess the same way. It depends on the, the client, it depends on the couple, what they, you know, how, how I can best support them in it. Mm -hmm. um, Yes, like I guess I would do the same thing. Some people are more than able to have a conversation, but I think I, if I haven't met, let's say I'm working with with someone that has an addiction, um, if I haven't met the partner yet, a lot of times, if I've never met that person, and and usually we would do abstinence periods or contracts earlier on in the process, I might want to bring them in so that they at least understand. Maybe they can get to know me and what I'm what I'm thinking. So that may be a good opportunity for me to to meet with them and help them understand me and my approach and why I might re be re recommending this as well as providing the like education that, that I'm not sure maybe the addict can or can't do. So it might be a good opportunity, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't, it's not like I have a one hard and fast way to do it, but depending on the, the, the situation, you guys, so, oh, go ahead. I was thinking about 
you know, that's what we do. But I think if I had my druthers and I had my preferences of magical abilities, I think I'd actually bring them always in and do, do, a, do a golf foursome, you know, both therapists and both clients, because I think there's something so important. You say about, golf foursome? I calls it a foursome. But I thought you said golf foursome. I do. Because well, some people know, hear foursome mean? and then they think, wait, threesome? Oh, what are we I talking about? Okay, sorry. Golf foursome. Got it. Two addicts, uh, two clients. I get it. But I think um, everybody that might be good to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to hear everything at the same time, and it hasn't gone through any filtration process, um, I think there's power. And, and also meeting the other therapist, mm. you know, seeing who my husband or who my wife is meeting with, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, um, to see them and to establish trust for the other clinician. But I think there's power in education in the moment, hearing the experiences, everybody hears the same thing at the same time. And I think that's good for the couples when they go home, as well as the other therapists heard what the, you know, the partner or the addict said. And so that can come into the room at a later time. And we're all on the same page with expectations yeah. and what this is and the purpose yeah, and so all that. I'm actually like, you know what? Well, next time we do that, I want to really ask that we do a foursome for these reasons. Yeah. Well, there's also the piece about setting not just the expectations of what it's going to be, but the expectations of what are you likely to go through? Because I know that That's with the point. addicts, we have a whole whole spiel we go through about, you know, look, look, you know, you're basically going through uh, a, a, a detox from your sexual addictive behaviors. And it's not uncommon that you're going to have really vivid dreams, that you're going to have memories that are going to come up. You might be more irritable. You might sort of feel more reactive and traumatized. Make sure you're bringing any of that stuff into therapy, talking with your sponsor about it being so sort of setting the table for them about not just you're doing this period of, of abstinence, but of what it might bring up for the addict, what it might bring up for the partner, but so that they're both sort of prepared for what that might look like and have, um, have ideas and tools and resources to, to manage that. Yeah, that's a good idea. So true. And I, I think too, the <clears throat> helping, again, going back to why we do this, that, yeah uh typically by the time someone comes in a room if they're if they're an addict they 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 they've kind of boiled most things down to i get my needs met through sexuality so i'm happy i'm sad there's there's this is what i'm going to turn to intimacy is sex and we have to retrain intimacy is that's one component of intimacy but intimacy is so much more than sex i think that's what we we have to like it's been overinflated so we have to get it back more right sized and sometimes we can't just, we got to swing the pendulum a little bit more this way so that we can add more things in. I, I found you can't just add these other things in when I have this huge thing that I'm, I'm, you know, going my, my go-to resource all the time because mm -hmm. addicts may start acting out within their relationship, possibly using their partner yeah. for their emotional regulation and stuff. And, you know, maybe they're not acting out outside, but we certainly, that's not the partner's job to, to do that work for them. And I think it also has a piece about the intimacy, like Jeannie was saying earlier, when you take, you know, sexual behaviors off the table, then it forces the addict to start to recognize, well, how do they feel connected to their partner in ways that aren't sexual? Can they feel connected to their partner by 
holding hands, by giving them a hug, by sitting close to them, by having a conversation, by sharing about their day, sharing what, what emotional experiences they've had, what, you know, by doing a shared activity or cooking dinner together. Can they start to feel that connection in ways that don't directly involve sex? And for many addicts, that's um, that's eye-opening. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of a consultation I was just in earlier and the, the, the um, addict, the one with compulsive behavior was saying, I, I can't during this abstinence period, hold hands, snuggle up. I can't do any of that. And, and the partner was really having this experience of abandonment. What do you mean? There's no touching what's going on. And so what I was encouraging that clinician is talk to that addict. And I'm really saying this to the public here of, because everyone needs to understand what their sexual energy is and what arouses them. And if he's doing an abstinence awareness, I'm gonna also call this, he's figuring out where does he become aroused? And maybe he becomes aroused when he puts his arm around your shoulder, around your waist. Like, where is that for him? And we're using a lot of hymns and hers, let's acknowledge that. So it's not that it's an abandonment, although it can feel like that for the partner, it's really an exploration of sexual energy. And when you take sex off the table, I think both people can examine that in a bit more objective way, especially when they've had preparation and education. And in my view, as a couples therapist hat, it's furthering the opportunity to have the dialogue. Like we know we're not gonna be having sex. However, I'm feeling aroused with this and that, I need to back up this is what's happening. Let me share that with you. I mean, there's a lot of rich work right there. So that's the question we started with. And let's 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 stick here for a little bit. What is abstinence? Totally. That's exactly. And so that was, again, for each, my answer would be that for each person figuring out where does their sexual energy, where is their arousal? And find that threshold mark, find those behaviors, actions, whatever and then step farther back from it so that you can practice having that sexual energy come up and then say, you know what, this is not the appropriate time. Let me kind of visually back that up. I'm thinking of a client as he's rubbing shoulders of his wife, you know, the sexual energy may come up, but that's not the appropriate time. Her shoulders hurt. So he's worked hard about, you know what, let me, that's not the appropriate time. And that's a really beautiful exchange. So what is abstinence? I think that's personal. I think that's figuring out for yourself, figuring out with your clinician, figuring out with your partner. That would be my answer. What do you guys think? My basic answer is similar because we work together, but (laughs) um, it's similar, which is, you know, basically we're taking all the sexual behaviors off the table. And on top of that, it's, what do you find arousing? I had one client who used his finger. And if you can't see me because you're listening to this, it's like the finger goes up a little bit. It's like, well, if I'm giving a hug and I'm getting a little bit more, then that's breaking this. And when, when it's not doing that, that's when I'm back in my, my place. And so it's, it's, I will sometimes just uh, tell clients, look, you know, we're taking sexual behavior off the table, but we're really taking that arousal off the table. So if you come home and you give your wife a hello, hug and a kiss, that's fine. We're not doing making out. We're not doing long lingering kisses. We're not doing lingering hugs. You know, if it's sort of arousing, 
we're taking it off the table because we're trying to give your brain a chance to get that sexual energy off so that you can experience things in a different way. You have anything that you would add or completely disagree with there, Dan? No, nothing. I'm trying to see if what I would just, I wouldn't disagree with anything. I just had these other, I can imagine someone listening either that sounds very sex negative possibly, or like it's a problem or we're saying, and I I guess I just want to clarify, we're not saying any of this is a problem, that sexuality is a problem in a relationship. It's taking arousals. There's nothing wrong with that in a healthy, committed relationship, obviously. I'm just trying, I just want to say that we're taking something off because, because again, addicts overly everything boils down to that arousal as a coping, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm upset with something. I, you know, use arousal to cope. I'm happy. I use arousal to cope. I feel trauma. I want to numb. I want to escape. That's the answer for everything or something that shouldn't necessarily be sexual. I'm, you know, enjoying a nice moment with my partner and um, just, you know, holding like, it's a very embracing holding, you know, nurturing experience. And then I sexualize that we're trying to shift that into you know, I guess, so shifting it into something else and adding more things in. So the only thing I would say, it's more of like, it's not necessarily what abstinence is, but I think during the process of an abstinence period, what, what I want is instead of focusing on meeting my needs, can it also be a way of how do I learn to meet the needs of my partner in a different way? So what's the energy? What's it feel like when I'm rubbing my partner's shoulders and it's not about my arousal. It's about me. Can I, can I visualize really giving love, nurture, care through my hands? You know, that's a different experience mm-hmm. than what I, I need and I'm taking and I'm, you know, getting from somebody else. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's also part of it is changing my, my own relationship with touch or with, mm-hmm. you know, building in other aspects of intimacy. So sitting, having a verbal, you know, conversation and, and inviting and initiating, that's all part of, part of this too. So mm-hmm. I know it's a little beyond what, what abstinence is, but I think what the time period entails is all, those are all the rich things. And then all the barriers that come up, the resistance, you know, that a client will bring up the difficulties with it. To me, that's, yeah. that gives me a lot of clues into where we might struggle in the future or what other solutions and, you know, areas we can, we can address. So. I think it's a really rich time, like you said, Jeannie. And with the um, uh, with the sex negative piece, I mean, yeah. the piece that I would just throw in is that the other part of this that we haven't talked about yet is at the end of the abstinence period, there's the work that we're doing with the client and with the couple around what does rebuilding their sexuality, what is putting their sexual relationship back together in a way that's healthy for them, that's satisfying for them, that is as best as we can get it, you know, sort of, um, I want to say free from the addiction, although I don't know that that's completely possible. But, you know, the, the, the other side of this, it's like, it's not just take sex off the table and that's it. It's take sex off the table to re-regulate and then rebuild it so that it's healthy, satisfying uh, for people. Because our, like you said, our goal is not that everyone out there is abstinent for the rest of our life. Our, our goal out there is that people have healthy, vibrant, non-addictive sex lives that they find thoroughly uh, fun, exciting, and erotic. Mm-hmm. I Can have- I just, I just want to, before we change, I want to say, I want to remind everyone, you're listening to conversations on sex, addiction, and relationships, and we're talking about abstinence periods and sex addiction recovery. Well done, sir. Thank you for that reminder. I totally, it totally slipped me. So go ahead, um, Jeannie, I cut you off. 
Yeah, no, I was thinking of the sex negative piece. And I, you know, I often say to my clients, like, I want you to be turned on by your sexual partner. That sounds like healthy, great stuff. It's exactly what you were saying. That is the arousal because you're totally into the other person and you're connected. You've had a great day or you had a good time out and, and you're just feeling like you want to be closer or like Daniel beautifully said, I'm happy. I need to cope. I'm sad. I need to cope. I'm mad. I need to cope. That's what we're trying to figure out. But being turned on by your partner because you think they're wonderful and a human and they're attractive to you, that's a good thing. So we want to celebrate that. I want to come back to, and we used to tease about this, is like if it's a 60-day contract or a 90-day contract, you know, day 91, the addict thing. <laughs> Can we have sex now? <laughs> I've been counting on oh, my calendar. You. I've been Xing out every day, you know. And, the, and to be honest, like that's one of the partner's big fears, typically, not all, but a lot of partners, like what happens on day 61? He's just like circling, chomping at the bit, waiting oh, to get, you know, I've had addict. addicts. I've had addicts that could tell me on this date at this time, my abstinence contract is over. Right. Yes. So let us highlight for everyone listening. It does not mean the day after the abstinence contract or period is done. It goes back to what Tim so beautifully said. It's that's the rebuilding. Then it's rebuilding. And again, we're mm. having lots of conversations of what do we want our sexual life to feel mm. like, be like for each of us. And each of us feel valued in the experience. So if we're going to put people through, you know, we typically recommend a 90 day abstinence period. I don't know what you uh, recommend, Dan, but if we're going to put, no, I'm just kidding. Nothing. I'm just joking. No, that's, (laughs) that's pretty standard. Yeah. Yeah. If we're going to put people through 90 days of abstinence and we know, Hey, here's why we recommend doing all this stuff. Does it actually work? Can you define work? Oh, good one. Oh, does it bring a significant benefit to the addict and or the relationship? And or the partner? And or the partner? I'm voting yes. (laughs) 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 I know my vote Um, because again, when done with preparation, education, apparently I'm all the shuns, facilitation, you know, between the coupleship and everyone's has the same understanding and expectations and they're talking about it throughout the process. It it does come to um, some tokens of trust in the trust bank, some increased sense of I can share with you and I know it'll be okay-ish. And that sometimes wasn't there previous. So I vote yes, it's helpful. <laughs> I, I have a, I was just going to say um, content versus process. So sometimes it's not successful. It didn't work because they didn't keep the contract or something. Um, so I guess I would say, yes, it does work. It does work. If work is, we can learn more, we can grow more. It gives more insight. It helps us move forward, you know, either in the therapy process or as a couple, um, like for example, I'm not advocating this for anyone listening, but more than once we've, we've, everyone's agreed for, to the contract that we've, we've put in place. And then lo and behold, the next time I meet with a couple, they've had sex by the, mm-hmm. in that, that, that time. 
okay, is that a failure? And they may feel bad. And, and sometimes they'll even, they'll do, and I call it like, they do this Bonnie and Clyde thing. They, they, they leave my office and kind of rally together against me as a therapist. And they're like, oh, that's a stupid recommendation and blah, blah, blah. They may, they maybe that's, I can do a better job of, you know, educating on the process and all that, but I still think, okay, that gives me, so what happened? I can walk through that with a couple. And was there some anxiety involved and what, what's the relationship sex serves for them and right now or historically, and, you know, what would it look like? So I guess it just brings up more rich ability to process. It gets me to know them a little bit more, you know, if they weren't able to keep the time as a couple. Okay. So then just, I can ask more questions about what happened and why, and, what would it look like moving forward? So I, I think it works. Even I love if it. it doesn't I work. It works. I think it works also. I'll throw my voice in here. I, I think it works also. Um, but I, I see it working from an intimacy perspective, like we were talking about earlier. You know, we often talk about sex addiction as being an intimacy disorder. And sex addicts typically crave intimacy, but it also terrifies them. And often their addiction has been a way to find a false sense of intimacy that feels safe. And when we pull sexual behavior off the table, it gives the addict the opportunity to start to experience intimacy and connection and relationship and all the richness that comes from that separate from sexual behavior. And it opens up that door for the addict and in their relationship and for the partner to experience and participate in a relationship connection and intimacy in a way that isn't possible if you don't take that behavior off the table completely for a period of time. So you guys, and I totally agree. Um, you mentioned abstinence period. We talked about abstinence period. You guys mentioned contracts. So how, all right, what the heck are we talking about contracts? What's an abstinence contract? I was thinking about that as well, Dan. I was like, you know, for someone who's listening, they're like, wait, there's a contract? Where's the contract? <laughs> contract yeah, I, is an agreement of what's going to happen. What, what, uh, what are we going to do? What are we not going to do for a period of time? So it's really an agreement. That's and in, our, in our contract, it's, it's here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're not going to do. And then we also include in there, hey, here are the things to be aware of. Here are the things to be careful about. Here's the the, the things that I want you to be bringing to me in therapy and I want you to be talking to your your sponsor about and, and I want you to let everybody in your recovery community that is a support to you know that you're going through this so that they can be a support to you. Um, and I also make it very clear um, that it's a contract between me and the addict that he, they're contracting with me to be abstinent. Hmm. It's not a contract be, within the relationship and it's not a contract with me and the partner. It's a contract between me and the addict because the primary benefit of this, the you know, the person whose brain we're trying to reset with this is the addict. So it's his, their contract with me. Is that to not put the pressure on the partner? Yeah. So that it doesn't put that on them in case there's this extra, anyway, whenever. Yeah, no, no, I was going to say that because I, I hear you, Tim. You're like, that's, it's a contract between the, your client or the addict client and the clinician. And I would say it is, it is an agreement because it has to be discussed in the coupleship. So it is an agreement that the partner's involved with, but I, I would say it is the addict's responsibility to follow their agreement and their contract. 
the partner gets to choose what she or he does or doesn't do. But the addict one who's making the contract, the responsibility is theirs. So if this, uh, if the other partner is interested in being sexual and says, I don't care about the contract, I'm interested in being sexual. It is the addict's responsibility to decide whether to be sexual or not. Because this person, the partners, the experience, they still have the autonomous choice. But the, con the addict has made the contract. Mm -hmm. So responsibilities on that person to abide or not abide. I wanted to get back to something, Dan, you said. You know, when you said that they come in, there's a, a abstinence period in place, they come in and they had sex. Um, is it a fail? And, and I'm with you. It's like, that's not a fail because there's so much to be learned there. I find it's also kind of a great thing. That means the two of them were having some sort of conversation or some sort of, you know, um, covert agreement to not hold the contract in place. And so sometimes that's a fun little giggle when they come in and, well, we had sex. And I was like, all right. Well, that's the two of you aligning. So I, I, yeah, I don't, I'm with you. It's like, it's never a fail because there's always something to learn, but sometimes it's because the two of them came together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If, cool. if, if they take a detour like that and they come in and they have sex. That's a good way to put it. Detour, get back do, on the road. <laughs> do you recommend that they restart the abstinence period or do uh, you leave the original end date of the abstinence period as your recommendation? I know my answer. What are you going to say, uh, Dan? For me, I think it depends on where it is in the contract. So, or the period. If it's like the week one and this happened, I'll probably reset. If we're talking like 89 days or something, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm as hard and fast where it's like, okay, we got to start from zero again. But it is telling. That's going to, you know, if you waited... 89 days of a 90 day period. And then you had like, what's that about? That's worth looking at. And maybe, maybe there's something about, maybe it is worth considering extending. Is it a full 90 days we extend after that? I don't know, but certainly what happened there. So mm -hmm. I don't know what you guys say. Mm -hmm. I'm for the complete exploration. You know, how did that decision, how did that experience come to be and what works for the two of you? I want to hear from the partner and the addict. What works? What would you like to do and why? And where does that come from? And how does that work for your coupleship? Because some folks will say, I think there's more for us to learn. And so I'd like to extend. And other people are like, you know what? I think we've been working really well and it actually we're feeling close. So I think I'm more apt to reset if it happens in the front side in the beginning. But sort of as it gets farther in, I, I want to see what they think, what they're learning and not learning, and how did it come to be? So I'll explore. Tim? There's Tim. always... He's like, reset! <laughs> I, I tend to lean that way. I mean, there's always conversation and stuff. But I tend to lean that way because I view the work I'm doing with the addict as neurological reprogramming. And the abstinence period at its core from the addict side is a period of time where the addictive behavior is taken away so that the brain can neurologically reset. And if they're, um, if they're having sex, putting sexual behavior in the middle of the abstinence period, from my perspective, they're uh, hampering that neurological reset of their brain. 
And I want them to get the full benefit of that neurological reset. I don't want them to just get a partial boost from that. Um, obviously, there's going to be conversations. And, um, you know, I, I, I sometimes like to sound like a hard ass. And then, you know, then it's easier for me to sort of like soften as we go. But um, my tendency is let's try to get the full 90 days in there because neurologically, it's going to be a benefit. Okay, so I have two questions, and I know we need to wrap up in a minute, but this made me think of a couple situations. What you just said, Tim, was was important. Can I can I log those for two seconds, just for the, the contract? Going back to the contract, do you guys have a template you use? Is it all individualized, or do you have a template that you use? We have a template that we use. Uh, the specific behaviors that will be abstained from is there's some general things that we recommend. You're not going to masturbate. You're not going to have sex with your partner. And, and then other things that might be included in there. We also include other uh, potentially addictive uh, things. So if somebody has uh, potential um, abuse or addiction to alcohol or drugs, we list those. Um, so we will put other things in there. So it's a template with some flexibility in there. Cool. I, I figured, and I, and I just want to emphasize, it's important to write this up. And yes. have everyone sign it because what makes sense in this moment, our memories change over time. One month from now may not remember the same as I did. So anyway, I just, my two cents would be, I love that having a template at least or individualizing it, having this written up. So if uh, don't just count on your memory. So I had to say those. So last, last couple things um, to your point, Tim, I completely agree around the neurological in, in, in reset going on. Yes. What if in these situations, so we talked about um, where, there's been deprivation in the relationship, whether due to sexual or intimacy anorexia, or if the partner just says, I, I'm not on board with an abstinence period. It doesn't, I, it doesn't feel safe or good for me. I, I don't want that. Even if you feel like this would be really helpful for your client, now what? <laughs> so partner's not on board. Mm -hmm. Now what? Mm -hmm. uh, for me, we're going to honor what's right for that couples right now. If that partner says, this is not what I want. I am not on board. And this, this triggers me in all sorts of ways. And that's not what I want. It's like, I would need to honor that. So I can have my recommendations and then I completely value what my clients want for their lives. And let me, so, let me, let me throw in there that with the, with the addict side of that, I will approach it because this is how I always approach things. And I will tell the addict, look, it's not appropriate for your partner to determine what your program is. The opposite side of that coin is it's not appropriate for you to ignore your partner's experience in making the decisions about your program. So I will say this abstinence contract is really, I want you to have the conversation with your partner, but ultimately this is a part of your program and you get to decide if you're gonna do this. If your partner is very adamant that she doesn't want this to, to happen, take that into consideration and weigh it as you're figuring out what you're gonna do. Okay, I know we're wrapping up, but here's this one other piece. <laughs> How many times have we said, and so let's address this, where our clients rather have said, we didn't have sex for the six months following discovery. Wasn't that my abstinence period? Great question. Okay, and I'm gonna say, no, that was not your abstinence period because the way we're talking about it today is as a therapeutic intervention. Being it planned and all these other pieces being discussed and then talking through how is it going, it's an intervention. So 
Um, do you guys say anything different when your clients are like, look, I haven't had sex for six months. Why do I have to do that again? I, I simply look at, it's usually the addict that brings that up in my experience, but I will usually look at them and say, there is a significant difference between not having sex and putting sex on the table. Therapeutically, yeah. And, and, and knowing that you're putting a boundary around it and not going there. And I think it really boils down to, you know, an, an addict or that isn't that where the relationship where they're not being sexual with each other, the addict is still usually obsessed about it. There's preoccupation. There's, there's sort of like that energy That's of, good. is she gonna, is she gonna be okay? And so that energy is still there, which is still firing up the neuro neurology. And when you take it off the table, that might still happen, but there's a different experience of even if she wants to, we're not. Mm -hmm. How about you, Dan? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think <laughs> yeah, that's it. Done. No, I, the, the, the idea, like, I love it when you agree with me. It's, if, I don't agree me, with you, I completely disagree. <laughs> no, the, the, the idea, it's the same thing. Like what's, what's someone's mentality through this? Is it like, I'm in the, I'm, you know, 26 days into my abstinence period. And I know exactly how many days and I'm counting down and I've got this calendar that I'm marking off the days. That's, that's not the way to approach. It's not stopping behaviors. That's the starting point. So stopping behaviors gives us the opportunity for all the other work. The, this, the 90 days to me isn't it, like, that's the opportunity for all the other work that we're going to be doing with the, the, the client or however long they need. Like it could be 30 days if 90 days too much or six months, that feels a little long, but you know, whatever, whatever the particular couple needs for, for their own, you know, in their own situation. So, yeah. So I'd say. Any All right. Last, any last thoughts before we wrap up? I'm so glad we hit this topic guys. I'm so I glad. I, just wanna, I want to reiterate. Oh, I think that this is important that while we're talking about an abstinence period and an abstinence period is very common when you're working with a, a, a sex addiction therapist on your addiction, that I wanna reiterate that just because we're talking about an abstinence period does not in any way mean that we're sex negative and we want you to be abstinent moving forward. I mean, this is a tool that we use to help the addict reset their brain so that they can step into a vibrant, healthy, wonderful sex life moving forward. And it is an intervention for the coupleship yeah. to develop those other kinds of intimacy and to create that communication and further the safety in that communication. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you too for having this conversation with me. And thank you all for joining us on the conversation on uh, sex addiction relationships, talking about abstinence and recovery from sex addiction. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to like us and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or find us on Stitcher or Podbean or wherever you find your podcast. And we look forward to you joining us next time.